the J Talk podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Hello and welcome to the J Talk podcast. Ben Maxwell and Sam Robson with you. And Sam, another bumper weekend of J1 action, of course, to round up. But on this week's episode, we have to say a happy anniversary to the J League. We do happy 30th to the J League. Fantastic 30 years for where they have come from, from like yeah, no international players really abroad, no World Cup appearances to three professional leagues. It's yeah, it's magnificent, and I thought they. Uh, cap that off this weekend with a couple of great games at the national stadium in particular. Yes, it was a uh, very uh, yeah, eventful weekend, and uh, yet yeah, the the J League uh, celebrating its 30th anniversary, and uh, well, to mark the occasion on J Talk, there was uh, simply nobody else we could have on than the man who has been there, seen that, and well, he bought and sold the T-shirt. It's uh, Alan Gibson from J Soccer Magazine. Alan, welcome back to the pod, and uh, well, it's a big happy anniversary to you as well. I guess you're right. I'm been here been here a while <laughs> yes uh I, I was there at the start and i'm proud to say i'm still at it um despite uh everybody trying to put us off doing think doing what we want to do and helping them out right uh yeah happy birthday j league uh well actually it's technically the 30th anniversary of the first ever j league game um today yeah today actually as we record right may the 15th i believe mm-hmm. of course the j league was formed a year or two before no, no 92, I think, so technically. But yes, the J-League actually kicked off 30 years ago today as we record. Amazing. Amazing, Jay. Pleasure to be here, and thank you for thinking of me. No worries. Yeah, amazing, Jay, indeed. And yeah, you're right, of course. The, the Nabisco Cup, as it was known then, uh, kicked things off in uh, 1992. But yes, uh, May the 15th, 1993, uh, was the date of the first ever J-League game. And uh, yes, uh, we are recording on the 30th anniversary and uh, well to mark the occasion uh, this morning or earlier today uh, the J League held their uh, J30 best awards ceremony uh, I watched it on uh, repeat on YouTube it was um well it was I think they tried to um yeah jazz it up a bit and get uh, uh get people's blood pumping but when you've got the likes of uh, Tatsuhiko Kubo on the stage uh, you're not going to get too much uh, color out of a, a player like him, it was good to see him and good to relive his uh, his uh, screamer of a goal in 2007 against Reds that was uh, one of the uh, winners of the best goal uh, award of the first 30 years. They they chose six different types of goals, uh, Alan. And um, well, yeah, as we uh, I guess we can work our way through uh, some of the awards that were handed out today and uh, where, maybe where our opinions uh, differ. Uh, it's obviously a huge. Um, a huge undertaking to try and round up 30 years of uh, of play from a league into uh, a, an hour and a half award ceremony and, and hand out yeah glass shards to uh, to to certain deserving people. Uh, so yeah, it's a game of opinions, and I think um, yeah the, they 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 did their best, and whether it was a, an overall a success or not, um, that's for uh, maybe for other people to decide. But uh, okay, well yeah, overall. Uh, when the J League started 30 years ago to where it is now, uh, we got a question in from Kevin that I might actually start with because it's uh, it really struck me as a, a really interesting one. So off the top, um, Kevin asks, Alan, um, given the long term view of Japanese football, would the current state of the J League 30 years in be considered to be ahead of schedule, behind schedule or about where they expected, do you think? 
Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, well, uh, that's, I think the key point is that the J Japan does have a plan. I mean, we have the, the famous 100-year plan. And the fact that uh, we're 30 years in, you know, one, almost a third of the way there, the fact that we have a plan means that there are targets and aims and deadlines. And this is a big help in the, in the long run, which 100 years is a long run. Um, and I think uh, we, we're doing quite well. I think success is a, a two-pointed chopstick, of course, because Japan has so many more world-class players now. Uh, or players that think they're world class, or the Asians tell them they are, and so so many of them are going overseas, which lessens the uh, the overall skill level of the Japanese players in the J League, of course, uh, but improves the talent for the national team, of course, which lets you know J League and JFA technically are uh, are not our same organisation, but we must you know say the hundred year plan is for Japanese football, and the J League will benefit in the long run from all these players coming back with experience and perhaps when they come back as coaches and managers, having learned for many years under the best managers in Europe, uh, that will be something else that improves the J-League. I think the key now, and it is finally changing in the last few years, is uh, not relying on the same old agents bringing the six-rate Brazilians to J-League that we've had for the, the first 10, 15, 20 years, um, and finding the alternatives. Uh, of course, Iniesta, Forlan, Torres, etc., and back then Lineker, Scilacci, Dunga were at varying times of their career, but mostly at the end of their careers. Uh, but they brought exposure to the J-League, and I know from players that played with them and trained with them that uh, these, these guys taught our young Japanese players a lot. And however well they've done on the field, uh, they've helped players grow off the field um, and in training, and they brought the fans to matches. So I think, you know, we've we went straight in at the top with, with the likes of Zico and Lenica and Stoichkov and Skilachi and Dunga and, and so many more players that were, were top class and not necessarily all done uh, at that time. In general, I think the uh, the foreigners have uh, peaked at the start and then dropped a little bit. And now they're coming back again. And the fact that um, we have German, Polish, uh, European foreign managers coming in at last instead of looking at the same old guys, uh, very old in some cases. And um, the the players are getting different. As I said, too many Brazilians from the same old agents and the same friends of friends and contacts. Um, and now we get the Scandinavians at Urawa Reds that are doing extremely well. And I know that teams are looking there um, at the same kind of players now. We've got various other Europeans who, uh, who are not necessarily in their twilight years anymore. And some of these guys are going to be the key to J-League continuing its path up up the hill and you know let's call it a pyramid and they're getting on the way up there you know it's it's a hundred year plan as we said but the more experience the players that go overseas bring back as players as coaches as managers as as scouts as people who work at the top of j league clubs uh the the better it's going to be so uh, i think we're, we're well on target i know this is going on a long time isn't it sorry we are well on target to 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 carrying on i mean third of the way through we have uh we have three divisions who are very professional divisions in most cases, and a JFL that's ready to feed feed players up. And we have uh, JFL teams that are bringing in foreign players too. I mean, it's um, everything is is happening so fast. You know, 30 years it seems, but it it is so fast. It's been a for me. It's been like uh, it was like yesterday when I turned up at the uh, the first ever game of the season and I saw an Englishman refereeing the game, but. Um, that's a different subject altogether. But yes, I think we're on target and uh, 30 years in, I think it's uh, excellent so far. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. And I guess 
for for me, Sam, I haven't been following the G League quite as long as Alan, but I, I've been in Japan for for over twenty years. Um, yeah, for for me, it's the I guess it's the organic nature of of the growth of, of the league. You know, as Alan said, three divisions of of sixty clubs from over forty prefectures and when you think about back to when it started with just 10 clubs i mean the uh, the, the growth has been um well astronomical but it hasn't been rushed i don't think it's been uh you know clubs have had to fulfill criteria and at, at times we've bemoaned um missed opportunities for clubs where they they might have been able to move up a, a division or they might have been able to enter a j2 or j3 once that came into existence but they didn't quite uh, meet meet the criteria but i think overall the 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 plan of the league has um has been seen to be successful in, in the growth and the the sus- uh, sustainability of pretty much every club with uh, obviously one notable exception in, in Kanagawa and that saw a phoenix rise from the ashes but yeah for me uh, it's been um steady but encouraging growth all the way through and you know i hope for the day that we we do have representation from every prefecture and you know that might uh, be five to ten years away but as i say i hope that's that's happened uh, that will happen sorry um what about from the time that you started um working for uh for football radar covering the j league even since that time i mean there have been a number of new clubs into the league but um yeah how have you seen the league develop in in the time that you've been uh, working on it yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the DAZN deal, actually, when the money came in there, I think that really helped. And uh, that's given the like exposure across leagues. You get so many people now around the world that are engaged in J2 even that you get the highlights of those games, you get certain games uh, broadcast. So I think that it's really widened around the world. I think there's generally a more appreci- a bigger appreciation now of uh, Japanese players, even in that last five or six years, where more and more players have gone over to different areas of Europe. You see more in Belgium, you see more in Portugal, and now they are in all the big leagues as well. You're winning trophies, winning Premier Leagues. In Okazaki's case, you're winning European titles like Daichi Kamada, Players of the Year, like Kyogo Furuhashi, who just won uh, Celtics uh, Player of the Year, the Scottish Player of the Year yesterday. So there's definitely more of an appreciation of Japanese players around the world. And that is just through the way that they have built it up. I think you compare the J-League like with the A-League and the MLS, which are two very comparable leagues in terms of the way that they've developed. I think what Japan have done so well is that diversity of team. You've got the 60 professional teams now, which is way more than the A-League, way more than the MLS. So I think that representation really helps. And I think they're just the, there's been greater engagement with their... It, they're starting to focus on outside ventures, outside countries, and with the more broadcast this year, which has been fantastic to have four games on YouTube for the majority of the world. I mean, didn't quite extend to the award show yesterday. That was geo-blocked everywhere. So there's still room for improvement, but you can definitely see that engagement outside. And I think the interest is only getting bigger and bigger in the J-League, in Japanese players. And uh, yeah, long may that continue. But yeah, anything else you'd like to add, you'd like to add Alan? Uh, yeah, I think uh, to go back to what uh, what the well the original question, and then I think Ben sort of uh, hinted at it is the the fact that, uh, that the J League teams have had to had to uh, I mean they've been restricted in what they can do. They've been demanded to be uh, to make things happen in the community and the amount of fans in the the field, their training, their 
the the amount of money they pay for players, etc. So the restrictions on these teams to make sure that they do enough to get their JD license has also been a big help because it's not like some some amateur team has come straight in and they've you know they've got ten good players and they have a good season and suddenly they're up there and they've got no ground. And no, I mean it it's happened in in other parts of the world and a great it's a great fairy tale and the story is amazing. But in the end, the, the club rarely lasts that long. And the fact that we've insisted on these clubs having solid solid foundations before they even get into the J-League is also a, been a great big help. I think uh, an, another thing that we need to change perhaps is uh, better management um, of the actual clubs um, above the what we, we call the manager, Japanese call the head coach or whatever, but the clubs uh, are still, they need to break out of the formula of uh, having uh, bosses who are either not even football oriented, you know, for example, the guy at Gambo Saka works at Panasonic and he's a money man or he's a company man, but he's not a football man. And a lot of a lot of teams are like this and they they need people in football and nothing else uh, in in all the teams. And of course, not all of them are like that. And then the, uh, the, the scouting department or the directors of football or the general managers of the clubs are very often just sort of ex-players that the, the club feels they need to give a job to. And they're not necessarily the best people for the job. Um, so there's a lot of uh, nepotism or taking care of the, the guys who you played for you, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And so, some of these people are excellent at what they do, but some of them are just there because they know people at the club and and they feel like they they owe them a position. So more diversity in who is hired uh, and perhaps even overseas people coming in at those positions would really help a lot. Obviously, Zico, for example, at Kashima Antlers has, has completely uh, well ruled ruled the world there. I mean, he's not necessarily a hands-on football director anymore or or, or was he ever, but he definitely instilled the whole Brazilian atmosphere in that club and, and changed it from, you know, made sure that it was a strong and, you know, everywhere. I mean, even on the field, they're not afraid to, to kick and, and punch and foul and take one for the team, whereas some other teams are not like that. And is it good or bad? Well, of course, it's, it's good for Kashima Antlers. Um, so this, everything that can be learned from good management um, and overseas people uh, should be should be taken more diversity and and less nepotism um, people who are educated and people who know the game I mean from the, the top of J League the JFA I mean right down to to referees on the field I mean if they the more they know the more they work the more power they are given and the responsibility they are given um, to make the decisions and not have to fall on their sword if they make a slight error you know which means that people will stay in their lane and we need people to go out of their lanes and then I, we can go on to, as sam mentioned the zone and of course i we've been talking about this for for years and years and probably since the beginning of jtalk podcast and i mentioned it like i think i did a three or four tweet thread yesterday on it where the television commentators are doing absolutely nothing to promote the game either. Uh, the zone do very little. They start the game two minutes beforehand, and you know, there's, there's obviously it's budgets, and they can't all have a, a three-man panel in the in the studio with uh, you know ex-players talking about what's going to happen in this particular game because we have like 30 games. But uh, they can do a lot more. And the commentators, the the one thing that really irritated yesterday, but it's irritated for forever was there was a, a VAR decision in a game and um, we spent literally three minutes uh, 
of the TV looking at the referee with his hand on his ear when anywhere else in the world they would have been replaying the incident, discussing it, making their decisions, telling us what they thought and what they had. And in Japan, they are so worried about upsetting a player or a manager or a referee, so they can't tell what they're thinking and they can't be individual. They can't, I mean, whether they can't or they're not even allowed to is still a is still a debatable, but they just won't make anything because they either embarrass themselves by not knowing what's happening or they embarrass someone other. So there's so much everywhere from the top of the, the, the J-League, the JFA, the, the the general managers of clubs, the managers of clubs, right through to the referees and, and the television. There's so much more that could be improved with a little more flexibility and a maybe some individualism, the derukugi wa utareru, they say in Japanese, the hammer that sticks out, the nail that sticks out will be hammered down. And that's still very much a thing in Japanese football too. So if we can get someone out there who will be a little more outspoken and not scared to uh, to say the right thing and the wrong thing and, and maybe be be berated for it or even possibly lose a job for a few weeks, we need more. Uh, we need more outsiders to come in and give us a little bit more. Well, yeah, I wonder if this chairman, Mr. Nonamura, is the man to ultimately um, usher in a new era. But, um, yes, I, I found out by reading uh, jsoccer.com over the weekend, Alan, that it's all Stuart Baxter's fault, all this uh, yeah, not being able to criticise anybody. Ken Matsushima writing on your website about the origins of that unofficial rule when uh, Stuart Baxter said to the referee uh, once a, 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 a mistaken offside decision was shown on the big screen, there you go you got that one wrong and he was promptly sent off and from basically from that point on the uh, the yeah the unofficial rule of not being able to uh, to question a a, a referee's decision uh, as part of a, a, broad, a broadcast or as part of the the media covering the J League was born so um there you go it's it's all his fault but uh, yeah i mean what what is uh, what are the challenges then maybe for the next 10 years alan i'm sure we'll have you on for the 60th anniversary it'll be well over uh, 1500 episodes i think of J Talk by that point but what about where we might be, say, uh, in April 2033? Do you think um, every club or close to every club in the J-League will have their own uh, football-specific stadium? Is that a target that is, is realistic? Do you think we won't have to reschedule games, uh, maybe an Emperor's Cup game, uh, an Emperor's Cup replay, because uh, one club has to have uh, an elementary school sports day on their pitch um, uh, on a particular Wednesday evening? Or, um, you know, where where is the future of, uh, of the J-League? Not just, um, you know, the, the issues that we've talked about with you, yeah, being able to um, open up in terms of criticism and, and discussing the game more frankly than the, the, the media do at the moment. But what, what are what maybe one or two uh, uh, bigger picture issues that you hope uh, takes the game forward in the next 10 years? I get the feeling that Kazu will only be JFL level by then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I think that the fact that so many so many teams with with the right people at the top and with the ambition and or with the finance or with the backing of their local city or their local communities are are giving um, more time to uh, well in particular sport football specific stadiums is is a key point um, or certainly even if they're shared stadiums but no tracks please and we know how difficult it is of course because you know it needs to be used in the city for other things too but uh, the fact is that uh, football specific stadiums but literally all the way 
all the way to car parks. I mean, everything for the community um, needs to be be considered. And I, I think uh, we'll, we'll be aiming for, uh, well, for 30 years. We should have four divisions by then, right? Four J-League divisions and 80 teams, uh, perhaps every prefecture. Um, I think uh, the key point would be uh, perhaps uh, J4 for sure, but maybe even J3 becoming uh, perhaps regional to cut down on the expenses for the teams, mm-hmm. uh, north and the south or an east and the west. Um, but also I think uh, I, I really liked the idea of uh, under 23 teams in J3, um, unlike some people. Um, it was uh, it was like uh, Marmite, as we might say, or uh, something else that, you know, it was give or take. But having J3 teams um, under 23s was excellent for for Gamba, for for Cerezo, for uh, FC Tokyo at the time, because they were able to develop young players. And the fact that now they have uh, reserve leagues, um, but basically they're they're aimed at, uh, again, young players under 23s or even less. Um, And I think the more games that these players are able to play, the better they will become in the long run and will help everybody at the moment i think the the great thing that j league has uh, is that players like uh, for example kaoru mitoma as a, as a perfect example uh, a player who went to university and uh, came out at uh, 21 or 21 and a half and came straight into the j league because he'd already been playing a few games here and there as a special designated player but also he was playing in a very good league in the university and of course in high school uh, FC Tokyo's Kuyu Matsuki came straight from high school, which is, you know is, does happen as well. But the players that come in at 21 and 22 after four years of university, but they're still playing 40, 50, 60 games a year. Whereas players that join a J League club at 18 or 19 or, or, or younger and, and are not as good as Matsuki uh, tend to end up having two or three years where they play very little at all because the, the reserve games are <clears throat> almost meaningless. Most Japanese teams play maybe on a Wednesday afternoon with the, the players that didn't play at the weekend or the injured players and uh, the youth and the kids and they play like four halves of 30 minutes against some local school or university and it's not really a competitive game and it's not 45 minutes against someone else, 90 minutes against another J1 team. So more football and you know lots of people say oh they're playing too much football already but but more football more regular competition football um uh will only help uh the the youth uh and the and the players that are not getting their games improve even more and then as this goes along there are more players more teams more fans more money more i mean it, it can grow i mean obviously it's uh it's 30 years time, but I hopefully I will be here along with you. Um, not sure about Sam, though. Um, <laughs> will will yeah. radar still be? Um, I mean, everybody will be able to get there. I, I can't imagine. It. I've often thought about it now, but, you know, we'll all be walking around with uh, with spectacles that have TV screens inside them. And we'll have little chips in our forehead with all the latest news. I mean, it's going to be quite incredible. I look forward to the j talk pod well, is, will it be a podcast the j talk eu week something in your ear and you get everything you can talk directly to millions of people you don't even need us anymore just just ban on his j talk directly into your ear for just one million pounds a year oh yes just what everybody needs alan just what everybody needs all right okay well uh, yeah we'll wait and see where uh, where the j league is in in 10 years time let alone 30 but uh, yeah 
Um, it's uh, it's been quite a ride so far, and uh, well, thanks for that question, Kevin. That's definitely got us thinking. And uh, there's a couple more from Kevin uh, later on in the episode that uh, yeah, I'm sure Sam and I uh, will get to. Uh, so okay, let's run through these awards. Um, we don't have to spend too much time on them individually, but um, yeah, I guess some of them we can. Uh, uh, debate at uh, greater length than others. Uh, the best match was uh, was chosen as a Sendai's first after the uh, Great East Japan earthquake. They visited uh, Kawasaki and uh, they won uh, 2-1 away at Frontale in April 2011. I mean, obviously uh, an emotionally charged uh, afternoon and um, a huge... Um, yeah, a uh, huge outpouring of emotion and uh, the the fact that Vigalta, uh, after um, yeah such a, a terrible disaster, were able to bring some joy to the uh, yeah the people of Tohoku with that victory. Um, I mean, yeah, nobody can argue with that. There obviously have been some um, incredible matches over the 30 years, but for the occasion, I guess more than anything, that one was uh, a worthy winner. Um, the next one's an interesting one, Sam. Now, uh, last week uh, you. Uh, uh, you described uh, the, how the J League is often tin pot by playing, uh, well, continuing games uh, on waterlogged pitches where um, many other leagues would suspend play. Well, the J League's uh, selection of the best scene, the best moment in their 30 year history was uh, Dragan Stojkovic playing keepy uppy from uh, the edge of his box, basically to the halfway line on a waterlogged uh, Nagaragawa pitch in Gifu. And while it's an obviously an enormously impressive piece of skill, the fact that the game was continuing on in the first place, I mean, it kind of just proves your point, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure it necessarily shows the, the game in uh, the greatest light necessarily. Yeah, really good from Stojkovic. I mean, it, so, yeah, I suppose it's a, uh, something that people look back on fondly, but it wouldn't be something I would pick. I think they have absolutely missed a trick in not picking Anderson Lopez jumping into the moat. That is the best moment that I've ever seen, and that should really have been awarded here. <laughs> Well, yeah, if they were going to give Stojkovic a, a nod, Alan, they surely should have given him um, the best goal scored by a manager in a dress shoes from his own technical area. Indeed, that was that was probably one of the highlights of my J-League 30 years. Was, was, uh, for those people who don't know, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. But yeah, that ball volleying out and then there's a goalkeeper lying on the floor injured and Stojkovic is so angry, he just whacks the ball back from the halfway line, it goes in and... Uh, did he get a red card for it too? I can't remember. He did, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. He got the red too, but uh, but you know he's he's just wearing his like his black leather shoes and his and his and his suit. I think he had on. He just whacks the ball back and it goes straight in the goal. And he just looks at the ball going and he turns around to the, takes the applause from the crowd and then walks off with his red card. <laughs> Brilliant moment. Brilliant. <laughs> Yes, indeed. It could arguably the best, be the best goal in the history of the J League as well. They they uh, they awarded six. Well, sorry, Alan, I didn't let you have your moment there. What what's your best moment from the thirty years? I mean, it's it's not that, but uh, it, w- what is it? Well, I think it's one when one of your boys scored a goal. Um, hmm. It's been. I mean, it's not because I, I I am at the time and was at the time and still am, of course, because uh, when I first arrived, uh, Vissel Kobe didn't exist. I live in Kobe and. But I was looking for a J-League team and I chose Gamba because they were the nearest. And um, so I was a Gamba fan from the start. And um, so the fact that Gamba won the championship with this goal um, helps a lot, of course. But for me, uh, personal personal things happened at the same time. But Yasuki Kondo scored a, a goal on 89 minutes and 57 seconds, I think. Um, for FC Tokyo, it, the, the score became 2-2. Uh, this was the 2005 championship final day. 
five teams could still win the championship on the final day. And uh, Cerezo Osaka were in the driving seat and clear at the top when uh, Conno scored and that cost them two points. And uh, Cerezo dropped from first to fifth with a single goal. And then Gamba Osaka won the championship. So um, that for me is like the most important goal, the most, I mean, the most incredible time. Five teams winning the championship. That's like for Premier League viewers when uh, I think uh, Michael Thomas scored two goals for Arsenal to to take the championship from Liverpool. Sorry to bring that up, Ben. Mm. Um, um, but um, for me, the actual moment was uh, uh, in those days, there were, of course, this was pre-COVID and, and uh, pre even more controls for the press. So I was literally standing on the, uh, the uh, well, not quite the edge of the field, but I was in Nagai Stadium on the running track on the halfway line um, with my little press pass on and basically watching the, uh, the guy from the J-League in his suit and he put on his little white gloves and he took the J-League championship trophy out of its box and he put it on a table and uh, he was all set and then Connor scored the goal and this guy put his gloves back on and he put the trophy back in the case and ran outside and hailed a taxi. I mean, that, you know, I mean, obviously that wasn't on television. I'm sure I'd love to have seen if it was. So not many people will have actually seen that happen. But I saw it happen. And that, for me, is the moment uh, of the 30 years of J-League. Yeah, I, I, I was pretty sure you were going to pick that, obviously, an absolutely incredible moment uh, to, to cap off a, an incredible day. And the end to the 2005 season was absolutely remarkable. I think, yeah, they've, they've not given that moment the the award uh, well for a number of reasons but yeah ma- mainly because they don't want to further upset maybe any uh, Cerezo supporters with uh, with long memories as obviously they still have never reached the summit uh, in J1 that was their uh, their best chance to date and uh, yeah to see it snatched away so late on um, I guess yeah for a number of Cerezo supporters that that will still be very very raw even 18 years later but um, yeah a, a worthy choice and a huge uh, obviously one of the the biggest days in the history of the J-League, no question. So, yeah, they gave six different types of best goal over the uh, the 30 years. And, yes, unfortunately, uh, best goal scored by a manager in dress shoes was not one of those categories. But a couple of uh, um, favourites of uh, the, the the two guys uh, on the uh, on this episode, uh, Patrick Mboma from uh, from Gumba, scored the best volley slash overhead back in 1997, Alan. And more recently, Sam, Ryota Oshima put the finishing touches on the best passing move goal for Kawasaki versus Kobe in 2018. That was the most recent of the goals of the six that was nominated. And, um, well, it's good to see um, this this Kawasaki side that's been such a juggernaut over the last six or so years acknowledged. And, um, well, you'll have been wrapped to see Oshima pick up a gong, Sam. Oh, absolutely warm my heart to see his name there. And, yeah, it does. It really summed up that Kawasaki team, how good they were. I'd, I'll have to ask you both where they necessarily rank in terms of the best teams that have been in the J-League in the last 30 years. But they're certainly well and above the best team that I've seen in the last eight or nine years. And yeah, this passing move was just everything that Kawasaki were looking for. It was just perfect. The way, uh, the movement, the move, the passing, so, so crisp and a wonderful finish from Oshima, who, yeah, if only he didn't get injured every five seconds, what a player he could have been. But yeah, going on that, um, where would you rank? I know it's hard as an FC Tokyo supporter, Ben, but where does that Kawasaki side rank in terms of the last 30 years in the J-League? Well, yeah, through gritted teeth. I mean, the most... Um consistently excellent team i think there there has ever been and um yeah they've they just um 
made the league uh, look uh, a cakewalk on a couple of the uh, the occasions of course winning four out of five and um yeah despite losing so many great players that we that we know over the past few seasons um i must admit i wasn't as um into the j league as i am now when the the uh, the, the kashima teams that won three straight in um in the late to, in the late noughties were, uh, were up to their tricks. So um, maybe Allen is better placed to compare that uh, Antlers juggernaut to this Kawasaki one. But yeah, for me, um, certainly in the time that we've been, we've been doing uh, J talk. Yeah. They, they are the most consistently excellent team. I think I can say with, uh, with uh, almost near certainty. So uh, yeah. Where do they, uh, where do they rank for you, Alan, this, this Kawasaki team uh, against the, the greatest teams in the history of, of the G league going back to, of course, the Verdi teams that swept all before them right back at the start of proceedings. Yeah, I was going to mention that if anyone needs a, needs a, a little mention in this one is is the Tokyo Verdi or Kawasaki or Yomiuri or whatever they decided they want to be called uh, in 93, 94 were, were pretty pretty much uh, excellent all over the field. But it, it was a completely different game. Um, you know, it's like comparing guys playing on mud to, to playing on the pristine snooker tables that we usually get in uh, football around the world these days um i think the uh, the atlas team were were all round all round um excellent as well i mean they they had they had their little militia for one mm. before they had the, they had the fight and the, the take one for the team and the give you a punch in the back of the kidneys if you're running past them uh, attitude as well uh, which you, you rarely saw from kawasaki frontale but the fact that frontale of this era managed to, to just carry on winning after after player after player left i think uh, they are probably the best especially over three or four or five years uh, as i said i think that you know we shouldn't write them off this year either yet yeah, and of course uh, Hiroshima won three and four. We shouldn't forget them, but um, yeah, they obviously weren't uh, always Alan's favourite team during their run of success, were they? But uh, yeah, uh, so obviously yeah, in Bomber, the the best volley slash overhead back in '97. Do you remember where you were watching that from, Alan? Yeah, I was literally um, if you put if you put the goal and then you the actual goalpost and then you put Mboma and then you put where I was standing, it's a straight line. I was right behind it, in line with the angle of what he was doing. And uh, it was one of those things where you're, you're playing the game. You know, you, if you, sometimes the guy's going up for a header and you're watching the game and you sort of head it with him. You say so your head goes forward and that kind of thing. And I was like, I, I was flicking the ball up at the same time as Mboma was. I could see, it was like, I can remember my leg going up and then my other leg going up and then, and then my body sort of taking the volley with him. It was quite quite incredible it was like i was there yesterday and um yeah what a goal i mean he uh he celebrated afterwards and uh he was a very happy man and in fact i've i've tweeted him today i haven't checked if he's replied yet but i presume he knows um so uh it's uh yeah i was there and and the uh, the goal you're going to mention next too i think uh i wasn't there but remember it like it was yesterday incredible uh, well, uh, yeah, you're presuming I'm going to mention Leonardo. Uh, that's from 1995, and that would be my overall pick of the uh, the best goal. It's a it's a very hard thing to, na- to narrow down, of course, and I'm pleased that they have put them into different categories, whether you agree with all of their selections or not. But um, yes, Leonardo playing keepy uppy and mesmerising four defenders back in uh, in 1995, I think, is my pick of the uh, the best J League goal ever, uh, which is uh, obviously a huge rap, but um, yeah, just an absolute 
absolutely audacious uh, piece of skill and um yeah, uh, what can you say? Yeah, for me, it's it's the best ever. I don't know whether you can narrow it down to one, Alan. Whether that would take the cake for you as well? Yeah, it probably would actually. I mean, uh, I can't think of anything except the time when Shinsuke Nakamura kicked the ball through the bus window. Oh, well, that wasn't the J League. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't you know an, an audacious goal? I mean, we we see goals, we see we see players that pass pass, and we see guys that shoot from the halfway line or whatever. But you know, it's it's there's a lot of luck or uh, or, or mistakes on the goalkeeper's part involved in this kind of things, but but that Mbomas goal and Leonardo's goal, they were just absolutely incredible skill. You know, I like a I like a, a volley, I like a, a good half volley going in off the bar even more. But um, yeah, definitely, I think those two, and I'm glad that they they well, they obviously couldn't narrow it down, could they? So they've they've made little departments and, and given different goals. Uh, so uh, I'm glad they gave it, you know, just more than one goal because it was so hard. Those those two are the best, yes. Yeah, fair enough. Then, so the the best long shot, uh, middle shoot, uh, of course, as we know the Japanese like to call it, uh, Tatsuhiko Kubo for Yokohama FC against Urawa from 35 yards in 2007. The best free kick. Well, how many did uh, Shunsuke Nakamura give them to choose from? Uh, they they went for uh, one from 2016 against Gumba, and the best header. Uh, was a representation from J2, and it was uh, great to see and a, a great memory from every for everybody who, uh, who watched it on that day. Norihiro Yamagishi, of course, the Yamagata goalkeeper who uh, headed uh, Yamagata through against Iwata in the J2 playoffs semi-final back in 2014. Uh, yeah, his 92nd minute winner saw them through to the playoff final, and a week later Yamagata, Yamagata beat Chiba and uh, yeah, made it all the way through to uh, J1. They wouldn't have been able to do it without uh, yeah Yamagishi's uh, amazing goal. He was Allison before Allison did uh, Allison things uh, for Liverpool. I'd better get a positive mention for Liverpool in uh, Alan after you mentioned Michael Thomas from before and of course here yeah, we've already mentioned it the best passing move goal was finished off by Ryota Oshima in 2018 all right so um yeah they've uh, separated in into those categories and uh, fair dues I think for doing that to the best 11 which was an interesting uh selection to to put it mildly and uh, by the way listeners if you're wondering and if you're a patron of the J Talk podcast you want to listen to the definitive uh, podcast about the best 11s uh, in J League history. Well, you can listen to Alan and Cesare Polenghi do a uh, an ultimate 11s draft that we did um, back in the uh, the early days of the pandemic when we were trying to um, yeah keep our listeners entertained. And uh, Cesare and Alan picked uh, they they drafted their uh, their best 11s from the history of the J League, and um, that, well, that was a thoroughly entertaining. Uh, the podcast for me to host and uh, basically take a back seat and just listen to. And uh, I encourage you to do that. If you haven't checked that out, maybe in the last few months, go and listen to it again because uh, yeah, it's Alan and Cesare at their finest, the dynamic duo. Well, anyway, um, they've, uh, they've gone for a, Five four one um, formation, Sam, which is uh, which is interesting. They're certainly looking 
to uh, to be tight at the back with uh, Masami Ihara, Atsuto Uchida, Marcos Tana- uh, Tulio Tanaka, Yuji Nakazawa, and uh, Naoki Matsuda. May he rest in peace. Um, I think, yeah, slightly less surprising than the fact that they went for five defenders is the fact that um, uh, Tulio has a statue of himself in his living room. I wasn't surprised at all to see that, actually, when they crossed to him on the telecast. But, um, yeah, what did you think about um, going five at the back, Sam, with um, yeah, so many attacking riches in the history of uh, the J-League to choose from? But they were, uh, they're certainly keen on locking it down at the back. They seem to be. I don't know if there's a big fixture coming up and they've got attackers that they're going against. But yeah, it is weird to go with a, a five at the back when you're looking to express maybe the best that the Japan has produced, especially when if you think of Japanese, like the stereotypical Japanese footballer is number 10. And I don't think there's only about two in this team, when, which is quite strange, really. So yeah, you'd expect a few more attacking riches. You'd expect like... I'm thinking like Yoshito Okubo and Hisato Sato, I think are quite unfortunate to miss out on this, but it is difficult for me, really. I, everyone pretty much in this list, I've seen the back end of their career, so I'm not necessarily seeing them at their greatest, and, and whatever you'd say Miura is currently in during his career. So, uh, yeah, I'd leave it to the both of you, really, to argue the where's and wherefores are on this team, but yeah, looking at the name value at that midfield looks absolutely incredible. Endo Nakamura, Ono, and, well, two Nakamura, sorry. And, uh, yeah, it just looks like full of talent still with the back line of, of the five in the back. But, yeah, it is a weird. You Usually when you want to express all the attacking riches that have been in the league. But, yeah, it looks a solid enough squad. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, f- uh, five at the back, Alan, and then four in midfield that Sam's mentioned there. I mean, you can't really argue with with any of them. I guess you could maybe question the fact that Shinji Ono might have done his best work abroad. Um, certainly a, a huge um, a huge factor for Urawa when he broke through I- into their first team. But, um, yeah, was uh, obviously over in Holland, um, you're shining uh, over there for uh, for a, a large part of his career. So maybe that's the, the one slightly eye-opening selection for me. And, and Sam's mentioned a couple of the, the strikers there that could have gotten a mention as well. Obviously, Okubal and, uh, yeah, Hisato Sato from uh, an earlier day, maybe, yeah, gone Nakayama or, um, yeah, I'm sure you could come up with another couple of names yourself, and it's obviously very difficult to narrow it down to a best 11. But, yeah, in attacking areas, they seem to have slightly hamstrung themselves by, as we say, by picking those five defenders. Indeed. I think what they're actually going to do, I think, is play a Tulio up front, so that would help. Um, (laughs) Maybe, yeah. You mentioned that Ono as being overseas, but I thought the same of Uchida. I figured that uh, Mm. I'm not... Fairly sure he belongs there because for him also, he went overseas uh, for quite a, a long part of his career, uh, quite a successful part of his career. And then he came back and um, I'm not sure he's he's done enough to really be there. Um, they've got four centre-backs there, you know, basically because they're the best players, you know, the, the best ones that we all know. So, uh, well, us older guys anyway. Um, but even the the youngsters, they know the legends of J League, and they've they've been, they've been brainwashed. Or probably not. That's probably an insult to the players. They've been uh, instilled with uh, all the the history of J League over the years too. So um, I mean, yeah, it's it's extremely difficult. I mean, just just go back to to 1993 and one team. We could put four or five of the Yamiuri Verdi players in in there necessarily. Now Ramos might be upset that he's not even considered here. And, uh, you know, the forwards, Takeda was quite excellent. Uh, Shinji, I think uh, you have a point there too. Um, so, I don't know. And and, and Kazu, well, uh, you know, is he, 
is he uh, well, he went overseas for a lot of the time as well <laughs> we can argue that i mean he's still playing now but did he did he do a lot in j league after the initial three or four years i'm not sure he did actually he's just there because of the name value and the fact that it's kazu so um yeah i mean going back and listen to that pod where Cesare and I talked about it for hours and, and discussed many, many more players and came up with our own 11s. And of course, there's no foreigners in this team either. So obviously, it's, you know, most foreigners only last two or three years in J League. And this is a, a big thing looking at the long careers of players like Nakamura or Shunsuke. Let's face it, Shunsuke overseas too, to be honest. Mm. So um, it's a um, big name, big um uh, big call, big names, and um, you know, it's as you say, it's uh, at least one thing I can say is that for for all of these things, that it was voted by by experts and people in the game and with knowledge of these players and and goals, and thankfully it wasn't down to an internet an internet vote where everybody had a hundred votes each and voted for their favourites and got their grandma and their their auntie to vote as well. So we got the actual results that probably do the do the league justice in the end. Right, and as far as um, them picking an MVP from 30 years of the J-League, again, it's, uh, yeah, I think there could really only be one choice, and it was uh, it was Yasuhito Endo, uh, currently, of course, uh, from Jubilo Iwata, but, um, yeah, played the majority of his career with Gumbaro Osaka, having started out with Yokohama Flugels and uh, Kyoto Purple Sanga as well, and, I mean, this, uh, this decision... This choice will obviously get no complaints from you, Alan. You know Endo very well. And, um, yeah, I mean, for me, he's the the obvious choice, and I absolutely uh, 100% agree with it. And um, the, the staying power, the, uh, the uh, yes, sustained excellence of, of, of Endo's uh, playing career is, uh, is basically, well, as far as I'm concerned, second to none. And, um, yeah, he was an easy but a thoroughly deserving uh, choice for this uh, award, which is, I guess, a, a somewhat strange one. But uh, they've decided to uh, to give it out, so there's really nobody else they could give it to. Indeed, 100% agree with you. Next. <laughs> yep, yep. I don't think there's anything we can really add there. Um, yes, the it, it was an occasion uh, of some sorts. Um, as I said earlier, they they did their best to try and jazz it up, but uh, yeah, for uh, for for giving out some uh, some shards of glass to to mark. 30 years of uh, of a competition, I guess yeah, it went uh, about as well as it could have done on a, um, yes, a, a Monday lunchtime. So um, well done to all the award winners. And um, yes, the, uh, the uh, yeah, we'll, we'll move on to the next 30 years. And uh, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we can't wait to get it started. All right, we'll, uh, we'll take a very quick break because um, according to my calculations, we've already been recording for 50 minutes. So we'll give Alan, a, a chance to have a quick spell and then we'll run through a couple of the games from from match day 13 before we let him get on with the rest of his Monday evening. Welcome back then. And, uh, well, it's all happening at both ends of the J1 table in Kansai, Allen. And, um, well, yes, I think we're uh, maybe equally surprised at, uh, at seeing Kobe top of the pile and Gumba at the uh, rock bottom of it after uh, 13 rounds. Let's begin with the leaders who obviously underachieved for so much of last season. But uh, this year they uh, suddenly find themselves after other results went in their favour over the weekend, five points clear 
at the top of the Top Flight Summit after a 2-0 home win over Hiroshima at the Novir Stadium on Saturday. One of the three games played, and it, uh, it kick-started the festivities on Saturday. Hiroshima came in undefeated away from home in J1 this season, while both of Kobe's league losses had come at the Novir Stadium, but uh, Kobe were uh, facing a Hiroshima side who had to uh, begin life without Makoto Mitsuda, who, of course, has unfortunately and, well, tragically for so many of us, um, damaged uh, knee ligaments in the previous round and uh, and will be out for an extended period of time, which is a huge blow to Hiroshima and their own title chances. But um, for Kobe, Allen, this was another box ticked against a, um, well, a, a team that came in to the match day joint third in the table and indeed finished it there after uh, Nagoya matched their 2-0 loss uh, over the weekend. Uh, so, um, yeah, as far as Kobe are concerned, it's uh, it's all systems go. They got a bit lucky with the own goal that uh, saw them take the lead two minutes after the break, but another all-action display from Yoshinori Muto capped the scoring uh, very late on and um, yet yeah, Kobe continue to roll. Indeed, I'm not sure you could call the own goal unlucky, but um, because it was extremely well worked and uh, couldn't go anywhere else in the end. But, you know, Vissel did what was needed. They're efficient at the back. They're clearing the ball. And they're swift to get the ball up the field, scored the goals. San Fretti goalkeeper Osako made two or three good saves to keep them in the game. It could have been four or five nil at, um, at times. We've got to remember, I think... Um, well, I think Sam Freche, I think uh, Higashi uh, has been uh, injured a little bit this year. And, but uh, basically, this was their first injury of the season, and, they, and it's going to last a while as, as well. Because uh, I was thinking how, how fortunate they've been without uh, injuries so far, that they managed to, to basically play all their games with uh, the same 11, with, with the odd change, uh, on usually on the, the right wing, perhaps on the left wing. But otherwise, they've been very fortunate and and very done very well to to play uh, with the same players and on the other hand Vissel have, have lost players to I mean considering they are they are five points clear at the top now um, they lost uh, the key man for me Kiguchi Ryuho basically for the season um, the main centre back gone um, then the other centre back Tulea got injured and has been out for four or five games. And I don't think he was really back last weekend either. He's, he obviously he didn't look match fit at all. So they've had uh, Tatsushi Yamakawa, the right back, has moved into centre back, and then Yuki Honda, who probably came from Kyoto Sanga, expecting to be like fourth or fifth choice, has, has played almost every game, if not every game this season. And last weekend they were without Go Sakai. It's like the defence is just collapsing. So Sakai was out injured. I had to say switch from right. The left back to right back. Honda went left back instead of centre back. I mean, the fact is that they're they're juggling players around. And in fact, talking of right backs and defenders, and Nanase Ino came from Sagantosu late last season and has hardly played a uh, a game. And he's he's hardly played like 15 minutes this season. And he's actually an excellent right back or right midfield or right wing back, depending what they do. And he hasn't been able to play at all yet either. So the fact is that they've they've done really well considering. Uh, they've had a lot of injuries. I haven't even mentioned uh, Iniesta, who's probably the key point is that he isn't. He hasn't been playing, um, and Sergi Samper, who looked very good and was just settling in when he did his knee in, uh, literally about a year ago now. He's back now, um, but uh, Mitsuki Saito has come in and he's probably one of the key players in this team now. So um, 
Vissel, the key is that Vissel have been doing it with with injuries. And the fact is that they have a, a team that's playing together. They have harmony in the squad. And it's down to manager Takayuki Yoshida. Um, and hopefully the big boss, Mikitani, who used to regularly chop the heads off his uh, managers after three or four bad games, uh, he actually realises that with a little patience, the right man can get the job done. Because, I mean, I'd say midway through last season, towards the end, when Vissel Kobe were, were literally rock bottom and um, apart from a, a good four or five games at the end, which pulled them up to mid-table, they weren't exactly doing very well late last season. But manager uh, was given the patience and he kept his job. And the fact is that now we see that uh, a manager that is well-liked by the players and knows the players very well, is a good coach and has a decent coaching team under him. If he's given the patience, he'll, he'll get the job done. And so I think that's the key for the, what Vissel are doing is... Uh, they're playing for a guy they like, who who treats them properly and knows what they're doing. And Mikitani has perhaps gone a little hands off at last. Who knows if they have a four or five game uh, bad spell in the next month or two, whether he'll keep the job. But hopefully, hopefully he will. And I think the key, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is that Iniesta was injured a lot of the time last year. Uh, wasn't match fit and or injured this year, then had some time after going to have a baby. Uh, I think his wife, not him. So I think that's five kids he's got now. So no wonder he's busy and injured all the time. But um, the fact is that this time last year, uh, if Iniesta was on the field and the player got the ball on the right wing or the left wing or, or even up front, they get the ball and they look around, where's Iniesta? And they give it to him playing the ball across the pitch, behind the pitch. And and this season they've they've I mean they're going for it. And the fact is that they they haven't got Iniesta to sort of impinge himself on the rest of the team. So they're they're doing what they're comfortable with and they're playing it well. He's he's got he as in the manager has got them playing directly, he's got them moving, he's got them breaking fast and quickly. And uh, at the back, we haven't mentioned Maikawa, the keeper, Daya Maikawa, who everybody said was so dodgy last season. I mean, to be honest, he was because because he was being forced into playing uh, what everyone else is being forced into playing, of course, is, is the breaking from the back, passing the ball around six times before they finally managed to get it clear. And uh, teams come in and, and pressure the keepers and they make mistakes. And it's not necessarily the goalkeeper mistake. And the key, I think, for me, it's noticeable that Vissel Kobe are not averse to, to long balls and big clearances from the keeper um, when it's needed, as opposed to many teams who are still overplaying it at the back and they're, because they're scared that the manager will say, you shouldn't have done that. You didn't, you know, you, you've got to kick it long. You're not allowed to do that. And all the teams are making errors. And uh, Vissel Kobe are noticeably playing quite a lot of long balls when it's necessary um, or, or when it makes a difference. Get it straight up to Osaka who wins almost every header um, and if there's a player behind him then the ball is knocked on and it's gone and they they're, they're judging it nicely so that they they're playing they're moving they're, they're bringing it from the back they're playing passing passing movement is excellent but the long balls are there too and Osako is I mean he's, he's injury prone or, or has been for for years and the fact is at the moment that he's still okay and uh, as I've, I've said on the podcast before I'm sure that He's what the national team were missing, even in the World Cup, is that the player, he can take the ball with his back to goal with a defender or two on him. He can hold the ball. He creates a space for others. And then he'll, he'll still finish, as we've seen, uh, with his multiple goals. But he's also creating space for others, uh, creating chances. 
Uh, I think that the second goal was was basically Osaka, if I remember correctly, Osaka holding the ball in midfield, breaking two or even three defenders around, then putting Muto in with one superb pass and creating the, the goal. I mean, they've got players all over the field that are doing what's necessary and a manager who's got them doing it uh, for them and with them. So I'm loving it. So, uh, I mean, they're doing nothing wrong at the moment, um, even with all the injuries. So uh, long may it continue for my local team. Yeah, so we'll move on to Gamba there now, Alan. And then you were mentioning there about the way that Kobe are playing and not taking necessarily risk when they're unnecessary. So, yeah, Gamba are a perfect example of a team that is trying to play out from the back, is trying to play in that more progressive, in quotes, uh, way. And it's not really working for them, is it? And this was another game where they got caught unstuck, really, by playing out from the back and giving away very cheap goals. Yeah, unfortunately, they're not the only team doing that, but unfortunately, they are bottom. They're not scoring goals, so they're, they're making mistakes or they're being caught on the break. Or I mean, so many, I mean, as watching them closely as I do, they are a good team. They've got plenty of decent players in, in every position. Uh, they've got two players in every position. Um, so, you know, the question would be, is it the manager? I mean, there's a lot of bad luck. I mean, the, the goal against Nagoya was pathetic. I mean, it was a bit of pinball in the back of the defence, but managed to get it clear. But they just kicked it at one of the players and it went in. I mean, Gamba are creating space. They are running very well. They're bringing in players that uh, from from injury like uh, Yuya Fukudaru came in and, and did very well, I thought. Then he got injured again. I mean, they're, they're getting a lot of injuries. They're getting a, a lot of bad luck, in my opinion. But they are not, as you've said and as I perhaps hinted at, um, they're not making the decisions of when to play it long and, and when to shoot and when to do whatever. Um, is it coaching? Is it because uh, Tani, the young keeper or the keeper that's come back in from uh, a long loan um, being afraid to to not do as his manager is saying um, can he not make the decision to kick it long sometimes when it's necessary um, are the players under the pressure to do certain things and it's not working and they won't change because they're scared uh, that they'll be dropped or that they'll do the wrong thing and their manager will be upset uh, now is the time literally I mean as as we speak, could the uh, the manager be changed by the time this comes out? Who knows? I mean, there is only one team being relegated this year. Uh, is Poyatos a good enough coach as opposed to a manager to turn things around? Is it the losing habit that Gambara are getting? I mean, they've, they've lost narrowly um, in five or six games, uh, unluckily in five or six games. I think Usami hit the post four times against Yokohama FC, three times in the last 10 minutes. Then he hit the post in the next game. And then I think Ishige hit the post. I mean, Gambara are getting the chances and they're almost getting the goals. So the key point is, will it change? Does it need to be a managerial change? Can he change it? Your thoughts, Sam? Because I, I don't know what to do. I'm like tearing my hair out at the team that I've followed for, for what, 32 years, uh, seemingly playing well and having some excellent players and just at rock bottom. What's going on? Well, there is no way that that team, as you mentioned, should be bottom of the league. There are so many good players in that in that team across all positions. You've got two of really exciting uh, fullbacks 
international defenders, two of the best goalkeepers, you could say, argue in the league. That midfield three is really, really good. And you've got an international striker in Jabali who was at the World Cup. So, yeah, no way they should be bottom. And there is no real evidence anywhere that Danny Poyatos is a good manager. He was rubbish in Greece very briefly. Uh, he got made Tokushima worse in J1 and then eventually got relegated. He drew pretty much every game last season with Vortis. I know they lost a few players, but still nothing great. And then, yeah, Gamba, although it looks nice occasionally and they are capable of scoring fantastic goals or creating really good chances, they're so easy to play against. They're so easy to score against defensively from set pieces. They don't defend at all. They don't pick up players. They present opportunities to opponents very easily. This like it's all right playing out from the back, but it's so casual the way they do it. The goal that uh, in this game, he played back to Higashiguchi and he barely takes a look and he just casually flicks a ball out and it's t- uh, robbed and then they concede. It's just so yeah, so easy to play against. Um, I don't see a future for Danny Piatos, I'm afraid. It's just absolutely isn't working and it, um, he fell upwards into the job and I, I was sceptical at the time. There have been occasions where Gambo have been a little bit unfortunate. They've played well and only got draws at the start of the season, but when they're beaten, they're soundly beaten. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not really They, I think a change has to be made because you can't be bottom of this league. There's no way they should be bottom. Like They shouldn't be behind Yokohama FC. How have Yokohama FC ahead of them? It just seems barely unthinkable, really. But, yeah, this has to be a wake-up call, I think. 18th place. There is no way Gamba, the size of squad, the size of the team, the uh, quality of the players. There's no way this team should be the one team that gets relegated. So yeah, I do think that there needs to be a change here. It's not that to say that the way that Piatos really wants to play, it can't work because it can. Um, you've seen teams throughout this league that have been able to do it. And you look at Yokohama if Marinos are probably the best at that, and they have been over the last few years. So it is possible, but it's quite clear that this team is not able to do this. It's not comfortable doing it. So there needs to be some level of adjustment. There needs to be some common sense either from the management or from the players to say, I don't always have to play this pass. I don't always have to go really short at the back if there are, I'm being hounded and there's like five or six uh, players uh, really pressing in. So, yeah, I think a change needs to be made. This should be the wake-up call. And, uh, I mean, it didn't work with Daiki Wamasa. And in fact, he's turned it around at Kashima. But I do think there's a very good chance uh, Poyatos won't be in charge when we record next week. Uh, I think I agree with you. And I remember I met um, Mauricio Pochettini at uh, Gamba a, a few weeks ago. And I thought, I asked him if he's ready to come over and take over. And he said, well, I can't. This guy's my friend. You know, that's why he was there. He was visiting Poyatos. But I'd say bring Pochettini in. But I believe he's just uh, agreed to, 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 to manage another team. So so Pochettini's out. But, uh, yeah, I think um, you are right. I think Tokushima, uh, they only drew, I think, 22 games last year. So uh, it's not all that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, um, we, we have uh, Kiyama, who's a manager of Fajiano Okayama in uh, J2, who's a former Gamba coach. Um, but you see the point, the keys, uh, as I mentioned much earlier, just because he played for Gamba before and he coached Gamba, does that mean he's the one that's looked at for the job? If we're going to go and look at ex-Gamba people, then at the moment, uh, Nishino Akira is, is the one. Bring him back for, for a year or six months just, just to get Gamba out of trouble. But... Um, you know, who knows? It'll probably be uh, Matsunami back in uh, for the third or fourth time from the uh, from the uh, scouting department. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, I wasn't sure until uh, you just gave that diatribe for about three minutes, and now I agree with you. You know, I think uh, Mr. Poyatos is is toast.
or potatoes uh, are baked. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's hard to believe that, um, yeah, we were worried and uh, yeah, obviously very understandably about Yokohama FC getting uh, cut adrift. And we uh, we look up now and they've won t- by hook or by crook. They've won two of their last three games. And uh, yes, they've managed to work themselves off the foot of the table. And, uh, and Gumba are now there after four straight losses. And uh, yeah, they're joint bottom with Kyoto of the form table with uh, with just one point from their last five games. Uh, so yeah, will a change be made? Well, we'll wait and see. And that would just be typical uh, J Talk luck for it to happen. Uh, yes, uh, either uh, later tonight or while I'm in the editing suite on on Tuesday morning slash afternoon. But uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll watch this space and um, yes, yeah, see if there is a change made before Gumba's uh, next league game, um, which is uh, the small matter of uh, hosting Yokohama F Marinos, the defending champions, on Saturday night. All right, so um, for Urawa, um, this uh, this 3-1 home victory was, uh, yeah, much needed. Of course, the Asian champions returned to league action last midweek when they played the first of their games in hand against uh, Tosu at home. And, uh, well, yeah, a much-changed and probably still hungover uh, Reds team uh, suffer- uh, suffered a 2-0 defeat to Sagan, who scored uh, twice inside five minutes, uh, inside the last 20 minutes, uh, to uh, yeah, to, to shock the Saitama Stadium crowd. So Reds needed a, uh, a response again at home on Sunday. And, uh, well, they got it eventually and with some fortune, but it, it came after Isam Jabali gave uh, Gamba a terrific lead in the 23rd minute. But, yes, they were unable to hang on to that advantage until the break after uh, Shota Fukuoka was uh, unfortunately penalised uh, by uh, VAR for a handball. Um, do we need to break out the VAR drop for this, Sam? Because it was an unfortunate one. Shinzo Kuroki's cutback hit his arm, but it did appear to glance off his leg uh, before it hit his, um, yeah, hit his arm. And as far as we were concerned, uh, that's, uh, and the, the, the rules on penalties these days, that shouldn't have been given, should it? Well, uh, it wasn't the last rules I read, and that was like 21, 22, I think I looked at it, and there, there was that caveat where it hits the part of your body and then it hits your hand, then it's not a penalty. But in the current iteration of the rules, that exception isn't there. So I think, and uh, Alan can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is technically the correct decision, but it doesn't look right. I don't think that should be a penalty. I think it's really harsh on Fukuoka. There's another one in another game we'll get on to where it's a very similar one where I think it was Katayama who hit him and then hit his arm for a Kashua. So there were two of these incidents. I don't think either really should be given, but I think it might be more of an issue with the rules than VAR. So we might be able to leave them alone a little bit this week. But yeah, Alan, what were your thoughts on uh, this decision? Rubbish. Rubbish. <laughs> um, very unfortunate. Um, as as I thought the, when the the new rules came in, uh, the new law came in, um, that the uh, the the glancing off the body onto the hand uh, or the arm made sense and uh, not being given, and that uh, the arm planted on the floor while making a tackle, the ball hitting the arm which is on the floor, not given, and I think that sort of helped a little bit in. Uh, lessening the problems but uh, as I said recently when we discussed it on the live on Twitter and uh, I believe I saw and heard that uh, they amended the law now so that it doesn't make any difference if it comes off another part of your body and obviously that's what happened because that's the penalty was given um, 
I don't agree with the law again as it was, but as you say, as as the law stands, it was a penalty kick. Um, I think I need to look at it again in the in the near future. Um, I'm a bit concerned about um, well inconsistency in giving in the yellow cards for handballs and this kind of thing too. It's obviously not intentional, and yet often the referee is giving a yellow card as well for these completely unintentional handballs. They're getting a penalty. They're getting a, a yellow card. Thankfully, not a red card. Um, I believe that they certainly shouldn't be given yellow cards for unintentional handballs. But uh, that's that's another thing entirely, I know. But, uh, yeah, by the law, uh, it was a penalty kick. I don't like it at all. Yeah, fair enough then. So I mentioned on uh, Wednesday night, Reds were stung by two goals in five minutes from Tosu. Well, they uh, they reversed that curse uh, on Sunday and, uh, yeah, killed the game off as things went to pot for Gumba early in the second half. Tomoaki Okubo made it 2-1 in the 54th minute. And then uh, an incident that Sam's mentioned earlier, a, a really poor pass out from the back from Masaki Higashiguchi, who, uh, yeah, we should say was recalled again by uh, Danny Poyatos for the second time this season with the Corsi Tani uh, benched again. Uh, well, yes, his uh, poor pass was pounced on by Atsuki Ito. Higashiguchi saved his shot, but the ball ran to the edge of the box where Kaito Yasui lashed home first time and uh, that was that. Gumba did enjoy the majority of the chances for the remainder of the game, but couldn't find a way back into the game. And then uh, Reds substitute striker Jose Kante thought he'd scored Reds as fourth and his first J1 goal in the 94th minute, but was was denied after a VAR check and he was offside in the the build up so um well we've we've mentioned the the, the VAR um decision going against Gumba there uh, Alan and before we let you go and I'm a bit yeah wary of asking you this question again uh, an hour and 20 minutes into our recording but we did have a question from Johnny Nickel and it's on um well yeah J League officiating uh, Johnny says that after 30 years of the J League it's clear to see that many strides have been made on and off the field certainly agree with that Johnny uh, one area that does seem to be lagging far behind is the quality and the consistency of officiating on display how much do you agree with that statement and what practical steps do you think could be taken to improve the current situation (laughs) how long have we got okay i'll try and keep it about two or three minutes um i think it's not just japan unfortunately though where the referees have noticeably got worse and i think it's because of uh, var and rule changes and and the fact that i think the rule changes uh, are not clearly explained enough to players, fans, um, by the TV, by the media, by the associations. So um, the, the, it's just unclear and the referees are under the pressure, just the same as, I, for example, Higashiguchi is under pressure to, to play the short balls only. The referees are, are under pressure to, to stick to the to rules, even if they, they don't necessarily believe in them. But I think that they're lacking inconsistency a lot um, and they need to be... Uh, called together and uh, their games, I'm sure they are, but their games are looked at and referees that don't do the right thing need to be uh, disciplined in private, okay, um, but talked about, disciplined, fined or whatever, I don't know, but there's so much inconsistency. Uh, Vissel Kobe's Mitsuki Saito was given a, a second yellow card in in the, like the 93rd minute, I think, two, two weeks ago, for basically delaying a free kick, uh, which had happened 10 times in the game already um, and happens multiple times in every single game we see. Um, 
players who grab the ball and walk away with it or throw it up in the air to the next player or just kick it away a few yards. And the referees, like, they sort of wave their fingers at them. And, and then the guy gets a second yellow, a red card, for, for kicking the ball a, a few yards away from a free kick when it happened many times. Um, and it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's inconsistency. And then a lack of awareness by the referees. Uh, again, Vissel Kobe had two occasions and San Fletcher had one occasion where I was watching as a referee thinking I was literally swearing at the, the referee from the stands and throwing my arms up in the fact that he didn't give obvious advantage the game was stopped immediately and in fact uh, Yuya Osako got a yellow card for for pointing out to the referee quite violently and vehemently that there was a huge advantage for Vissel Kobe and he'd stopped the game and brought the ball back. And they just, they just, they don't seem to have any awareness of what's happening. Um, I mean, they're not confident enough in their abilities to make these decisions, so they have to pull it up. So the the players are just make taking advantage of what the referees are not doing at the moment. So. It's uh, inconsistent. They're, they're getting away with a lot more. They don't want to give too many yellow cards. Um, I know this. But the referees have told me that they're told not to give too many yellow cards. But if the card is a yellow card offence, you know, taking the ball away from a free kick is a yellow card offence. And if the player does it once and gets away with it, everyone else does it. And then the referees, I mean, what Yuma Suzuki did to the referee uh, yesterday uh as we record, where Suzuki's goal was chalked off for a foul in the area, which was completely 100% obvious from the start. Don't know why it took so long to discuss it. And then he complained to the referee's face and six players surrounded the referee and the referee did nothing about it. And then Suzuki scored a second goal, which, to be honest, could have been given offside as well. Um, but it wasn't probably because of what the guys had done before. And Suzuki was glaring at the referee and being held back by his own players. Referee, I mean, they're just being disrespected. And the fact if they're disrespected and it's allowed, and then they don't make decisions. It's it's a, it just it gets worse and worse. So the players are taking advantage of the referees. The referees are becoming less and less confident. Um, if they make a decision, they get shouted at by six or eight players and they think, did I, did I do something wrong? So then they don't make the decision next time. So I think the referees are weak. Um, the players are being allowed to get away with too much. And then it, it's sort of a, it's a domino effect where referees make less decisions, make less fouls, give less yellow cards. And um, I think it's, this in particular is Japan, I think. Uh, referees overseas seem to be a lot stronger, but again, under pressure. So unfortunately, the referees are, are getting worse, I believe. They're just they're not improving at all. And uh, fortunately, I know also that if we can go down to the to the level that I play in, in the J, what you'd say, like the local, the city league and the prefectural league where I play and I referee. And I know that uh, players don't want to referee. And it's getting harder and harder for young players and teams to who are forced to register a certain amount of referees in their league games. They must referee, but they don't want to referee. And, and you can see why, because they're getting abused more and more. So less referees, yes, young people interested in refereeing. And then it ends up being the fact is that the, the referees that do make it to the top are, are much less capable um, but they're given the job because there's no one else to do it. So it starts at the bottom and it needs to be encouraged um, from the bottom, um, but it also needs to be encouraged at the top. Uh, more respect for the referees, 
uh, more power to the referees and then more confidence given to them to to make the decisions that might see them shouted at and screamed at but if they're confident enough and they know they're right then that's what's going to happen so at the moment i'm very disappointed in in the refereeing uh scene in general in japan um but it's it's starting at the bottom and it's starting with the, the young players of today who are just not wanting to be referees because of what they see on tv in terms of ways to improve the refereeing, we've seen in the last, well, a few weeks ago, there was the exchange program where a few English referees came over and did some J-League games and some Japanese officials went over, worked in England. They also refereed a few games. And prior to COVID, I think there was a, an exchange with uh, Polish officials. Have you spoken to any referees that were maybe involved in that? Or would you see this as something that would help benefit them, Japanese officials going forward and something we might see a bit more of in future seasons? I, I hope so. I think... Um... If, if the Japanese players, uh, Japanese referees go overseas, maybe they, they've got, they might feel less pressure. They might be a bit a bit scared of the intimidation, especially if they're doing a, a Premier League game or something. But if they're going over there and they're, they're seeing and they're learning and they, they see what the referees give cards for and what they give things to, I think they can, they can learn and do well. And I, I spoke to uh, the guys that were over here um, and uh, even Mike Riley, the former Premier League referee who came with them, uh, and he's now like the I don't know, referee director, for want of a better word. And he came with them, too. And I uh, I did speak to them about it. And they were they were happy to come and learn from the J-League. But I got the feeling that they were more more that they were teaching. <laughs> um, but uh, I did speak to the Polish referees. I've actually still got the, the guy's email address for the Polish guys who came about 10 years ago. Um, and they did the same thing. It was it was good to have an exchange uh, experience for both ends. And uh, as I mentioned way back about four hours ago in this podcast, uh, the first ever J-League game, I think, was refereed by uh, Martin Bodenham. Uh, if I remember correctly, he was certainly there that season. I remember him doing games, who was a, a referee in, in England at the time. And in fact, I remember saying to him, um, wow, you, 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 what are you over here? You've retired already. He's 47. So you've come here. No, I'm not 47 yet, you cheeky bugger, he said. And he'd, he'd become over on a, an exchange too. Whereas I thought he'd come over to, to work for J-League because he'd retired in England. So uh, even then, back in the 1993, at the first game, there were referee exchanges going on then. So at least they're trying to do something about it. And then Leslie Mottram, who came over, was was quite uh, an interesting guy. Uh, Scottish referee who refereed at the World Cup and came over and refereed games. And then he, he stayed in touch with the J-League. And I think, in fact, he stayed in, in the JFA house for a year, sort of running the referee's school or whatever. And then even then, after he went back for a year or two, he was still advising them. And then the guy who was on J-League uh, judge replay uh, recently, uh, uh, Olivier, I think, Oliveira, his name was, uh, ironically, I think, but he was a English referee, also came over. So they're, they're trying things. But I think the key point is giving them more power or less pressure to, to do the job that they're given and to follow the laws and don't worry about how many yellow cards they're going to be. If they start giving out 12 yellow cards in the first half, players are going to learn their lesson. We might not like it, but if they're breaking the laws, then they should be given the cards. So encourage the referees to, to do more. Educate the players perhaps before games to say, look, this is going to be a yellow card. It's what I do when I referee. And I, I, I gave a guy a, a yellow card after seven seconds once. And they was like, it's too early, it's too early. I said, no, it's never too early. You know, just I think the referees are under too much pressure to to please everyone, where really they should just concentrate on the game, concentrate on the laws, do their job, and hopefully 
do it properly and without pressure from the top unless they're making mistakes. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, the exchanges are a good thing. Uh, hopefully they're learning from these things and ideally they're, they're gaining confidence uh, is the key. I think confidence in to make the decisions will only improve the referees. All right. Well, yeah, we really appreciate uh, appreciate your thoughts there, Alan. Obviously, a subject that you care deeply about, and um, yeah, we uh, well, we all want to see uh, standards improved uh, in the Japanese game, and uh, let's hope that uh, yes, strides can be made in that area in the well, in the the, the very the not too distant future. And uh, thanks for your question. Johnny and uh, well yeah I mean we could do a Patreon uh, exclusive podcast I think on Alan's uh, overall thoughts on on refereeing and officiating but uh, I think we'll uh, we'll park it there for now Alan so uh, well what can we say 30 years of history and as we said you've lived through it all and um, yeah so many uh, wonderful moments over the years and uh, yeah as we said here's to well let's look forward to the next 10 years or so and let's hope we're still around for for, uh, for what's to come after that but uh, yes, before we let you go, give a feel free to give a plug to uh, to J Soccer Magazine on Twitter and uh, jsoccer.com on the web and um, what you've got going uh, moving forward. I think you just did it for me. Uh, follow me on Twitter at J Soccer Magazine uh, and uh, hopefully uh, J Soccer.com, of course. J Soccer.com is uh, becoming hopefully more and more of a uh, a, a, a Jsocopedia. I don't know if you want a better word. So uh, we're adding things. I mean, you can see the the mascots, the, the games, how to get to the grounds, the uh, the shirts in history. I mean, the whole thing is basically a, a history of J-League as opposed to, uh, you know, what's happening today or games and results. And um, jsoccer.com, uh, jsoccer magazine. Uh, what, what can I say? I'm just, uh, I just want to promote the J-League. It's what I did in 1993 when I found a, a local magazine that allowed me to write for them on, about this thing called J-League and they had no idea what it was about. But they gave me a couple of pages. Kansai timeout, that was, by the way. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. It's uh, it's my passion. It's my life. It's my hobby. Uh, it's uh, killing my bank balance. And don't tell the wife how much I spend on it. <laughs> thank you for allowing me to, to talk about the, the subject I love so often. And uh, thank you for anybody that supports J Soccer magazine in any way, whatever. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alan. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to catching up with you again uh, very soon. Uh, we'll uh, we'll let Alan go now. And uh, after a quick hit of music, Sam and I will be back in part three to round up the rest of the J1 Match Day 13 results. Welcome back. And thanks again to Alan for everything there in both parts one and two. Let's uh, get on with it, Sam, and uh, round up the other games from J1 Match Day 13, uh, beginning with the two showpiece occasions at the National Stadium uh, on both Friday night and uh, Sunday afternoon. There were over 56,000 in attendance, and uh, we'll start last Friday night when uh, FC Tokyo hosted Kawasaki to kick off the match day. Uh, Frontale had won seven in a row and eight of nine with the other a draw in this uh, rivalry, in inverted commas, that had been uh, one-way traffic over the last four years, and uh, they had dominated Tokyo at uh, Ajinomoto Stadium, winning five straight. So the Capital Club hoped a change of scenery on the big stage could help them snap their hoodoo against their Tamagawa Classico rivals 
and get that blasted river back under control. Obviously, coming into the game, Sam, uh, FC Tokyo's performances in Golden Week were particularly flat. Um, they simply had to be better uh, in such a big game. And, well, thankfully for me, as an FC Tokyo supporter, they were and uh, took a 2-0 lead inside the first half hour. Yeah, well, they couldn't have been much worse than the uh, performance against Sapporo. But, yeah, it was a good <laughs> response. The first 30 minutes, 35 minutes, Tokyo were excellent. The high press, they put Kawasaki under so much pressure. They moved the ball quickly. They got chances, create, you know, created good chances. They scored they had two very good goals. So Tokamoto was one of the changes. And they completely changed the back line, which was absolutely necessary. And he was magnificent in that first half. His first, the first goal, he checks back inside and... Uh, First goal for Tokyo. I'm not sure he'll ever score a better one. They're firing into the top corner. And he was heavily involved again a couple of minutes later as he put the ball across uh, for Shuto Abe to score. And uh, 2-0 at the time, it was very much deserved for FC Tokyo. They were completely dominant. And, uh, uh, yeah, it just looked like a perfect uh, afternoon for Tokyo at that point. But, yeah, maybe 35 minutes played. Kawasaki got into the game. Uh, had a couple of chances. Slovic made some very good saves. And it, 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 kind of the turning point of the game, strangely, was when Kawasaki went down to 10 men because Tokyo went completely into their shell afterwards. And from that point, it only looked like Kawasaki would, would score a goal. But yeah, Tokyo have uh, held out. But I don't think um, the last 45 minutes maybe of that game has really given a lot of confidence to Tokyo supporters. Yeah, it was a, a really good start. And um, I, I think, well, whether Frontale were, were rattled or were just expecting the same Tokyo team that had played their, their couple of games and been so ordinary over Golden Week. They were just slightly off their level, weren't they? And as you say, Tokyo's press worked quite effectively. So, though, I mean, those two things working together uh, made Frontale look fairly average in the first half hour. But they had to be better. And after going 2-0 down, I think they uh, they were. Uh, Taisei Miyashiro uh, drew a good save from Jakob Slovic. Well, he probably should have done better in the 37th minute, uh, but shot straight at the keeper. But then uh, given another chance just two minutes later, Miyashiro made it 2-1 with his shot, taking a slight defect, uh, deflection off Yasuki Kimoto. Now, yeah, I mean, did this game turn on the on the red card, uh, the VAR-assisted red card five minutes after the break? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Frontale basically had... No other alternative but to go for it. Toru Uniki made, I think, four attacking changes after they were down to 10 men. And as you say, Sam, there was only looked like one team likely to score towards the end. And as a Tokyo supporter, um, just a familiar sense of dread came over me uh, on this on this stage where they'd been so good so early in the game. And indeed, the first five minutes of the second half, they were looking better uh, than for the uh, the red card to happen and then for Tokyo to go back into their shells. Well, um, yeah, I was expecting a, um, a meltdown where Tokyo should have been putting their opponent to the sword. But um, I guess the decision itself, the, uh, the the foul was given by the referee as uh, Terohito Nakagawa ran out of the box. Yasuto Wakizaka slid in with his studs up and did no no question did catch Nakagawa who was uh, who was airborne um, as he left the box. I mean Wakizaka was fortunate it was just outside the the penalty area, so a penalty could not be given. But um, yeah, what did you think of the de- the decision? What, obviously, once the VAR's called uh, Mr. Nishimura over, uh, I guess there's uh, almost certainly only going to be one outcome but did you feel that the red card was justified 
Yeah, I did. I think the studs are so high, they're up on his knee, and that's where the contact is. And once the referee goes over to see that, I think he's got no real choice. I will back him up slightly in terms of um, the decision made on the field. I don't think he, where he is positioned, I don't think he sees just how high the challenge was. So he only gives a free kick at, the, at that time. Maybe the assistant referee really could have helped him out in that decision. But I suppose with the backup of VAR, they can always go uh, and check the decision. And I think they do rely on that a little too much. But in this instance, yeah, you gets to see it from a number of angles. And I don't think really Wakizaka can have any complaints. No, fair enough then. So four minutes after that, uh, well, after Wakizaka got his uh, marching orders, there was a chance for Ryoma Watanabe that uh, came back off the bar. He might have taken the slightest of deflections off uh, the Kawasaki defender, Takuma Ominami, and that might have helped it onto the woodwork and, and, and saved Frontale in that instance. But basically, that was that was almost as good as it got from that point on against 10 men from Tokyo. In the last 35 minutes, as I say, Oniki made attacking changes, uh, knew that he had to go for it, and uh, and Tokyo just continued to uh, to sink further and further back. And, um, well, yeah, um, we didn't park the bus because we don't have one. We've got two or three camper vans with the the turning circle of a, of a semi-trailer. But, uh, yeah, we, we managed to hang on thanks to a couple of uh, terrific saves by Jakub Slovic to deny uh, one of the Kawasaki substitutes, Daya Tono. Um, the, the first one was a spectacular chance from Tono when he uh, chested down uh, a long diagonal, was somehow in acres of space on the left-hand side of the Tokyo box. Um, it was an absolute crime that Yuto Nagatomo was that high up the pitch to begin with, but uh, Slovic bailed him out with a, a flying save to his left. And then... Uh, Torno tried an audacious chip with about five minutes left that the, the big pole tipped over the bar. But, um, yeah, the uh, the game ended with uh, Ominami having to be uh, replaced due to the concussion rule after a clash of heads with uh, with Masato Morishige in the Tokyo box. And, I mean, this is another one for the uh, officiating argument, isn't it? Because the two players went for the ball head first and there's a collision and for some reason Ominami was uh, well he wasn't only taken off the field but he was shown a yellow card for uh, for just going in and trying to win a header so that was a poor decision I thought to begin with and also Shuto Abe's uh, decision to go in and try and remonstrate with Ominami who was um, yeah prone on the floor was uh, was a poor one by the Tokyo midfielder but I guess can be excused somewhat in the heat of the moment so um, yeah, uh, I guess a win that Tokyo had to have, and for periods of the game, they were very good, but as I said, it ended in, um, yes, with me biting my fingernails down to the quick and wondering if there was uh, any real progress made at all. But uh, I don't want to sound like a, a damp squib. It's three points against, um, yeah, Tamagawa Classic rivals that uh, every Tokyo supporter inside the stadium absolutely relished. So, um, yeah, fair play to the Tokyo players and to Albert Pucci for turning things around somewhat. Uh, Frontale will go again, I'm sure, but we'll have to do without Wakizaka, obviously, for the next game as he'll be suspended. And maybe Ominami uh, might be uh, a, uh, yeah, a doubt due to his uh, concussion uh, late on in the game, of course. All right, so then on Sunday afternoon, Sam, we had another game at the National Stadium, and uh, these are two original 10 teams facing off. Of course, Friday night, original J2ers back in 1999, FC Tokyo and Kawasaki. Well, yes, Kashima Antlers and Nagoya Grampus are uh, two of the original 10, and they faced off again with over 56,000 in attendance. Um, A lot of the Kashima Ultras were not all that wrapped 
to be at the National Stadium, it must be said, Sam. But um, what can we say about their team? They have uh, roared further up the table after a 2-0 victory. That's a fifth straight win and a fifth straight clean sheet. Uh, Alan's mentioned some of uh, the antics from Yuma Suzuki. I know you're a big fan of his, but um, well, I don't know if you can defend him for getting in the referee's face uh, in the 29th minute uh, after, um, well, he obviously disagreed with the decision to disallow his earlier headed goal from another Yuta Higuchi corner. But um, yeah, I think we could have done without his reaction uh, in the 29th minute. Uh, yeah, I can't really defend it. Yeah, he goes and salutes the referee, doesn't he? Uh, I can understand his initial frustration with the first decision, but like, it's just a trait that this Kashima team have. Like They surround the referees. They are so in the face of the referees. A lot of intimidation. It comes from the manager. I mean, he's so wound up on the touchline, and Suzuki, obviously, the protagonist on the field, I think. They really need to stamp that out. It's one of the worst traits that this Atlas team have, and it does take away from the improvement that they've made on the field. So, yeah, I can't really defend Suzuki at all there. I think we'll go back to the, go to the first incident where he does score a header from a corner and it's ruled out because he kind of shoves his backside back into Inagaki. It's, he knows what he's doing, but it's very soft that it's uh, retaken. So uh, I think he can... I can understand why he's frustrated with that. And obviously... A carbon copy or well, sort of with another corner and he peels away this time heads his goal and that's where the uh, kind of intimidation of the referee comes from and the kind of mockery of the referee I suppose so yeah it was a I mean well worked corner from Kashima great that was that was good to see but yeah the less of the antics needed all round from Kashima yeah I mean Alan was talking about um, you know referees showing a bit of backbone there I mean uh, I mean, he might have literally got punched in the face by Suzuki, but I mean, surely you've got to get your yellow card out there and you mm. can't allow a player to get into your face like that. But um, anyway, um, the referee kind of, uh, yeah, turned a blind eye and uh, not sure, tried to pick out his mum and dad in the crowd or something at that point in time. But uh, anyway, yeah, Suzuki uh, did get his goal and obviously he's been a huge part of the uh, the Kashima turnaround in in these last five games that have seen them roar out of the bottom six and indeed uh, up to uh, fifth in the table um, they they are getting the results and that yes they wrapped up the three points with six minutes left uh, just seconds after he had seen uh, Mitch Langerak save his effort at point blank range uh, Antlers won the ball back and uh, Kei Chinen beat the Australian keeper via a deflection of Haruya Fuji and uh, yeah well the good times continue to roll for Antlers. Um, yeah, we uh, we thought that Iwamasa, Daiki Iwamasa was a dead man walking, Sam. And, um, well, yes, by hook or by crook, his players have um, have hauled him and, uh, yeah, the club back up the table. And, well, we'll see how sustainable this is. But uh, they do certainly seem to be playing with a, a real fighting spirit. Uh, it's not always uh, still the easiest on the eye, the, the, the football Antlers are playing. But it's, at this point in time, it's hard to argue with, with the results, uh, considering where they were, especially, uh, uh, you know, five or six match days ago. No, they've done really well. I don't think it'll come as any surprise that Daikyo Amasa's not on my Christmas card list or anything like that. But yeah, the changes he's made in the last few weeks have really worked. 
getting Suzuki in behind a striker, Kakata up front. Uh, Nago and Nakama have done well out on the wing. The two in midfield are very good in Patuka and Higuchi. And uh, yeah, they're getting the results. Dropping Genshoji, another big one, finally. I mean, that's a bit, I've been calling for that for about two or three years at different clubs. So they look solid at the back. And Namichi Ueda has done very well since coming back. I have doubts over him, but he's done well. And they were a solid outfit. They're not pretty on the eye. They're not very spectacular, but they do very well. They're, the two goals are the concerning one for Nagoya to concede. You would not anticipate Nagoya conceding two goals, one from a set piece, one from overplaying at the back. It doesn't really sound like Nagoya, but Kashima took full advantage of them. They're on a very good run um, run of form. They've got themselves into contention now for an ACL spot. I, I still don't think they are necessarily built to win the league this season, but they've certainly got very good players there. They've got a good form behind them, a lot of confidence. So, yeah, it's been a really good turnaround from Daikyu Amasa's side. Indeed, and it appears that 13 is definitely an unlucky number this season for for J-League clubs. I mentioned Urawa's loss to Tosu last midweek. They had been 13 unbeaten in all competitions before losing to Tosu, and the same number of games for Nagoya. They had been 13 unbeaten uh, in uh, the league and the Levine Cup before a Sunday's trip to the National Stadium. But, uh, yes, they have uh, suffered defeat for the first time in a long time. But as I mentioned earlier, they stay joint third with Hiroshima as uh, both teams lost 2-0 in match day 13. All right, then, uh, next to a team that had not won in four in the league coming in, uh, Albert Niigata, and they had the, uh, the not-so-small matter of hosting the defending J1 champions on their docket on Sunday. Uh, of course, F. Marinos had zipped up to second. They were unbeaten in six in the league and eight in all comps, and they took the lead, the uh, the visitors, just before the break when uh, Jan Mateus's cross was headed or shouldered or backed or something. It was bundled in by uh, Joel Fujita, Sam, and uh, what had come after uh, Niigata had wasted a, um, a, a glorious chance on the half hour where they had counted from their own box, and in two passes, uh, young Yota Komi was sent free down the middle of the park, but with only a Jun Ichimori to beat, he shot wide. That would have been some way to score your first J1 goal, but um, as it was, yeah, F. Marinos were able to go into the break in the ascendancy. Uh, yeah, they did. this was a fantastic first half. Um, if you're looking for like the most easily easy on the eye game of football you can ever watch in the J League, this was it. Both teams playing glorious football. It's definitely one for the purists, as they'd say. I thought Niigata played really well. Some of their passing was fantastic. It started in the first minute with a sweeping move and Fujiwara cut back to Ryotari Ito, first time shot and really well saved. And yeah, the move for Komi, it was nice, crisp passing through. Anyone else maybe in that position uh, and with a few goals behind them might have scored. He yeah, missed that chance and it might have cost them because yeah, Kojima had to save a couple of chances at the other end, one from Anderson Lopez. And then, yeah, Marinos taking lead right on the stroke of half time as the old cliches goes. That's one of the best times to score. And yeah, VAR wasn't delighted by it. They, as you mentioned, it came off something on Fujita and they were trying everything to get it disallowed. They were checking for offsides. They thought there was a handball. It went on for absolutely ever trying to figure out a way to rule out this goal, but they couldn't find one. And Marinos had taken the lead and uh, you expected at that point Marinos to go on. Obviously, they should be full of confidence. Niigata in that really rough run of form, but I think a lot of credit has to go to the way Alberts came out for that second half and they absolutely dominated the second 45. 
Yeah, well, brilliant stuff. They've uh, they've drawn rave reviews at various stages this season, obviously, for their uh, entertaining play, Niigata, and they did turn it on in the second half. Twelve minutes after the break, they drew level when the F Marinos were caught trying to play out from the back, and uh, a glorious first touch from uh, Ryotaro Ito saw him take the ball past Ichimori before passing it in to the empty net. And then a very, very late contender for um, best goal Best long shot uh, of the uh, the history of the J-League came uh, 10 minutes later, and I was slightly surprised uh, to see, Sam, today that uh, Shunsuke Mito didn't win it for his 25-yard uh, thunderbolt. Maybe if it had been from 10 yards further out, like uh, Tatsuhi- uh, Tatsuhiko Kubo's goal was back in 2007, he might have just taken this prize at Mito because you have never seen a sweeter hit football than, uh, than that one that was struck by Mito. Um, an absolute well, what do you what do you call a rasper, a a, thund, a thunder bastard? I think is probably the best way to describe it. Um, it was in the net in the less than the blink of an eye. It was uh, absolutely remarkable. Oh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, he just takes it on, maybe back off a little bit, but the way is he is clean a strike as you like, no chance for the goalkeeper's passed him before he even realised it had been shot. It was just an incredible effort. Would have been a worthy award winner for that long, long shot goal. And yeah, it's great to see this from Mito. It was someone I picked up before uh, the start of the season. He'd maybe been in the shadow of Ryotaro Ito and uh, Shunsuke Ota earlier on in the season, but they showed exactly what he can do. What a goal. It's a... Yeah, I think it's my new clubhouse leader for goal of the season. Yeah, I would go along with that. It's certainly going to take some topping. Um, you know, somebody stands on their head and does a, an Everaldo or something like that. We might have to revisit it. But, yeah, as far as um, sweetly hit uh, strikes go, you will never see one better. And um, I don't know if that completely took the stuffing out of uh, F. Maridos or not, Sam. But, yeah, uh, ultimately, uh, Niigata... Uh, we're able to, um, well, yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of football left in this game, 20-odd 20, uh, 20 minutes or so, but, uh, yeah, Niigata were able to uh, see out a, a hugely important victory for them that takes them out of the bottom six. Again, that's not an, as important a thing as it would be in a typical uh, J-League season, but, uh, yeah, they had not won in four uh, in the league, as I said, uh, when we started talking about this game. So a, a, a ship steadier and, yeah, hopefully a sign of uh, things going forward for uh, for Niigata when, uh, yeah, Ito's on the score sheet and then uh, Mito for uh, his first J1 goal. Well, uh, yeah, he's got... (laughs) I don't know if he can ever live up to that uh, and and ever do something like that again, but, um, yeah, can't wait to see him try. That was uh, absolutely phenomenal. All right, so, um, yeah, well done to Niigata. Next, we'll head to the great entertainers, uh, Sapporo, and I don't feel, I guess, so bad, Sam, about uh, F- the, the spanking that FC Tokyo took at the hands of uh, Consadole last week because uh, now Sapporo are the league's top scorers. Four more on Sunday has taken them up to 29 for the season. That's one more than the the league leaders, Vissel Kobe. I mean, it's the small matter of the, the, the 24 they've let in up the other end, and there's only two teams that are worse off in that department than Consadole, and they are the bottom two in the league, Yokama FC and Gumbar Osaka. But we know uh, never to uh, yeah count on a dull moment in a Sapporo game. And uh, yes, it was the same again on Sunday at the Lemon Gas Stadium when they visited Shaunan Belmare. Sapporo made a fast start again and they took the lead in the sixth minute when Takuro Kaneko's cross from the right was turned in by Yoshiaki Komai. Uh, Shaunan turned the game on its head with two goals in a minute 
on the hour. I say in a minute, but it did take six minutes from uh, Shuto Machino's shot hitting uh, Daihachi Okamura's hand for the resulting penalty to be taken and scored by Machino. Uh, but then uh, 80 seconds after that, uh, Machino found Hiroyuki Abe and he finished past Takanori Sugano with the outside of his left foot for 2-1. But uh, Sapporo were behind for only 10 minutes. A cross from deep on the right, superbly headed in by Tsuyoshi Ogashiwa. And then the visitors just kept on going. Ogashiwa's clever reverse pass releasing the inform Yuya Asano, who shot across Song Bum Kyun and in off the keeper's left-hand post. Then Superchok Sarachat saved the best for last. A tremendous curler across a helpless song in the 87th minute. The icing on the cake. So, well, yeah, they've done it again, Sapporo. Um, yeah, the, uh, the putting on quite a show on a weekly basis here and um, well speaking of um, super chalk there was a question from kevin he asked us uh, a question obviously right off the top of the episode uh, kevin wonders since the super chalk scored on the weekend is he in line to get more game time for Consadole sapporo uh, yeah it's a, t- it's a tough one really because so many players that support they've got so many uh, players that play in his position i think he's played very well pretty much whenever he's, we've seen him. This was a fantastic goal, but it's so difficult to get into that position. Like you got Yuya Asano has been very, very good this season. You've still got lots of Aoki, Ogashiwa, Komai, Yuki Kobayashi, uh, Takuma Arano can play in there. There's so many in that position, so it's really difficult for him to really push in and get a, an extended run in the team. But yeah, I think maybe this performance will to show that he's good to bring off the bench. Maybe he'll get a few more uh, bench appearances. There's still, I think, two more rounds of the Levain Cup where you might see a bit more of him. But yeah, it's going to be really difficult for him. As good a player as he is, it just shows the quality that uh, Sapporo have in that position. They've got almost far too many players that play that role. So yeah, maybe he can reinvent himself as a wing-back or something, or maybe as a centre-back. Uh, probably with Misha Petrovic, he'd probably fit, find a place there the way he converts players but yeah it's going to be difficult for him really to get an extended run into this team but that's nothing against the quality of player that he is because he showed yeah with his goal in this game that yeah it's uh, got quality and that's a really good technique it was a, a terrific goal at the end of a terrific response really from Sapporo because they're the masters of inconsistency so once they went 2-1 down I thought that was it this is just typical uh, Sapporo but yeah they fought back really well Ogashiwa's goal is one of my favourites a lovely bit of a diving header and Asano just continued from where he's left off in the last few weeks just putting in performance after performance so many goals and a key part of my fantasy football team that is uh, now back level with Alex Bishop yeah, I did notice you were flying, and uh, yeah, not surprised you've given it a cheeky mention. Fair dues, fair dues. Um, uh, yeah, Asano's been absolutely terrific, no question. And yeah, uh, Kevin, hoping Superchok can uh, yeah get some more game time and maybe the odd start here or there. But yeah, there certainly are a lot of attacking riches at Misa Petrovic's disposal. There's no question about that. So uh, as long as he's knocking on the door, he'll certainly uh, continue to get chances off the bench. Uh, no question about that. And Sorry, Kevin, I should have um, asked the, the the first question that you posed to us, actually, while we were, uh, when we were wrapping up the uh, the two games played at the National Stadium over this weekend. Uh, Kevin wonders, does the J-League want to play more matches at the National Stadium after the success of the weekend? I think for an FC Tokyo supporter's perspective, I would like to see a Tokyo move there on a permanent basis or to a, um, a football-specific stadium in Tokyo, uh, central Tokyo, ideally, but in the absence of that and 
the uh, concrete plans for that to happen. I'd like to see uh, Tokyo move to the National Stadium. I think uh, with the Antlers, while their game was very well attended, there's no question about that. I think the the Ultras there, um, yeah, don't fancy a, a trek down to Tokyo for um, well anything other than uh, than a cup final, which uh, they obviously had been used to uh, over the years. Uh, but um, yeah, obviously we often bemoan heading up to Kashima. I presume it's the same for them coming down and getting back up as well. So um, yeah, whether other other clubs outside of uh, outside of Tokyo want to regularly host games there, um, I think is up for debate. But yes, from a, an FC Tokyo perspective, I, I personally would like to see FC Tokyo play more games there. So I think that's all of your questions taken care of, Kevin, and we really appreciate you getting in touch. And, um, yeah, uh, all of your questions have, uh, yes, made us uh, get our thinking caps on. No question about that. All right, so we've got three games left to go, Sam, and we mentioned that uh, Yokohama FC uh, are off the foot of the table and uh, just about by hook or by crook, they were able to get it done uh, on Sunday away at Kashiwa Raisal. Um, they uh, they certainly gave as good as they got in the first 20 minutes. There were chances at both end, uh, both ends, but um, well, then they simply started reining in for Kashiwa. Uh, Mateus Savio in particular, I'm, I'm sure, can still not believe how he didn't score in the first half. Uh, in particular, the the best of several chances, a lovely chip over an advancing Sven Brodersen in the 33rd minute that was headed off off the line by Boniface Induka. Uh, two minutes later, the keeper Brodersen saved an acrobatic Mal Hosoya volley amongst the uh, the first half chances for Raisal. But yeah, despite all of that, they could not break through. And the Okama FC were controversially handed a chance to take the lead after Kotaro Hayashi's 67th minute cross hit the slightly raised arm of sliding uh, Kashiwa defender Eiichi Katayama. Or was this controversial at all, Sam? You've, you've corrected me earlier on talking about the uh, the Reds Gumba game. So um, this is now a penalty by the letter of the law. And the fact that the ball brushed uh, Katayama's leg on its way up to hitting his arm doesn't matter. Yeah, apparently not. I don't like it. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think he... Obviously, it's, there's no intent here. It just hits him on the stomach, hits him on the arm. I don't know what he can possibly do. I think it's really harsh against defenders, but referee has to referee to the letter of the law, and unfortunately, that's been given. I think it's a disgusting decision, and I think that needs to be rectified in the next uh, the next time IFAB get round the table and start messing with the handball law, as they like to do once a year, and... Yeah, I think this was really disappointing to be given. It was harsh on Kashiwa. It's a stroke of fortune for Yokohama FC, which you need in a relegation battle. But yeah, I think Raystar will be fuming. But I mean, they had so many chances. They should have uh, put the game to bed before this. So they can't have necessarily too many complaints. But I thought this was a really diff- uh, difficult decision for them to take. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we've said, though, uh, Yokohama FC haven't had the rub of the green th- thus far in most of their games. So maybe this was one... Uh, result, uh, well, sorry, one decision that they were due, and um, well, Koki Ogawa made the most of it. Obviously, he uh, he sent uh, racehole keeper Kenta Matsumoto the wrong way 
from the penalty spot and the visitors had something to hang on to and to hang on they did for the last 20 minutes and obviously an extended period of second half stoppage time. Uh, Savio was at it again in the 86th minute but his curler from 20 yards grazed the outside of the post on its way out of play. Um, obviously the shot count was heavily weighted at the end of the day in uh, Racehall's favour 21 to 6 according to the J League and 28 to 9 according to Google but at the end of the day uh, 18th at, at the start of the match day has beaten 16th and uh, they've risen up a spot as we've said Yokohama FC uh, to to 17th and um, yes uh, that has left Gumba rock bottom uh, after uh, 13 match days so well done to Yokohama <coughs> well done to Yokohama FC uh, choking up there Sam on their uh, yeah the second win in three games and uh, fair dues to them, uh, again, riding their luck, but uh, they won't care. And, uh, yes, uh, they're uh, they're off the bottom. All right, then. So uh, the last two games were, I think, derbies that, uh, well, we were looking forward to somewhat. Uh, obviously, each derby has its own level of intrigue. For me, obviously, the match they got off to a great start with Tokyo beating Kawasaki in a uh, in a Tamagawa Classico derby. Then we had uh, um, derbies in Kansai and in Kyushu uh, over <coughs> the, uh, the the remainder of the weekend. The Kansai derby was hosted by Kyoto. They entertained Cerezo Osaka, and this game will be remembered for one moment and one moment only, Sam. And that came in the 26th minute when we had the uh, the latest candidate for own goal of the season. Oh, we've seen some quality, and then this is right up there. I don't know how they, they could never recreate this this again. Kato crosses, it flicks Asada, hits Okuno off in a way, off the post, off Wakahara and in. It just, I believe it's like a, a trick shocking pool or something that they managed to pull off. Yeah, absolutely incredible. You'll never see anything like it again. And it's a good thing it happened. There's nothing else happened really in this game. But yeah, an incredible one. And uh, yeah, maybe a contender for own goal of the season. Yeah, um, I definitely would take the cake. Uh, it would take the prize for the, uh, the the month of May. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, um, yeah, I don't think it quite tops Takuya Wada. But, um, yeah, it's definitely on the podium, I think. And, and yeah, you're right. You, you couldn't possibly recreate this on the playground. I mean, the, the coup de grace, the ball coming off uh, uh, Wakahara's face uh, and then going into the net, absolutely remarkable. And, yeah, I guess all Kyoto fans knew that it just wasn't going to be their day after you concede an own goal like that. I mean, Yuta Toyokawa certainly did his best to uh, to, to fashion an equaliser for uh, Sanger with a number of chances in the second half. But yes, it simply wasn't Kyoto's day. And uh, Cerezo uh, can continue to alternate uh, wins and losses. And uh, they're back up to seventh after uh, this uh, 1-0 win. That certainly didn't set the house on fire. But as we said, will uh, be remembered for the one of the own goals of the season. Um, well, yeah, unfortunately for uh, for Fukuoka supporters, they won't be uh, remembering this weekend too fondly either. They hosted Tosu in the uh, Kyushu derby. They had the better of the first half of Ispa, and they played the entire second half against 10 men after Yoichi Naganuma was sent off for a raised boot to the face of Daiki Miya in first half stoppage time. But despite banging on the door, they could not find a way through. And Tosu dug in for a backs against the wall. Derby day point, Sam. 
Yeah, I'm not sure Avispa really set up the play against 10 men because they don't have that there's unnecessarily that urgency to go forward. They don't know what they're doing necessarily when it, the onus is on them to really take the game to an opponent. And close to sat in deep and really restricted Avispa to very few chances in that second half. I remember a Wellington header, which was pretty tame. But otherwise, Park commanded his box really well. They cleared anything that came in. And it was quite comfortable for Tosa in the end. Uh, Nil-nil, uh, yeah, just a fairly... Unfortunately, I don't think that the red card... It, it wasn't great up until that point, but the red card kind of ended the game as any sort of spectacle. Yes, indeed. All right, then. So, um, by the way, I'm not sure, listeners, if I said earlier that uh, Yokoma FC beat Kashiwa on the Saturday or Sunday, but it was on Saturday, and obviously that ramped up the pressure on Gumba to do something on Sunday away at Reds, and yes, they couldn't and, and have ended the match day at the bottom. So, just wanted to clarify that. I can't even remember if I said that or not, but uh, anyway, uh, just to make sure. All right, so all of the games from match day 13 rounded up then, and um, well, yeah, an action-packed way to, to mark 30 years of of the J League and um, yeah amazing goals um, calamity own goals uh, refereeing controversy uh, this uh, match they certainly did have it all and uh, once again we have to thank uh, Alan ever so much for uh, everything he uh, brought to the table in uh, parts one and two of the episode uh, Sam will do a very very brief look ahead to match day 14 then I mean we're over two hours at this point so it doesn't really matter if we go on for a couple more minutes does it the match day gets going on Friday night with the Sapporo hosting Kyoto and then there are eight games on Saturday, they are spaced out reasonably well, I think, throughout the day. So, um, what's your pick of the weekend? Sam's pick of the weekend. Well, first of all, I'd like to say to the J-League, stop organising things like this. I don't want to have to start work at 3am and go, go until 1pm. This is far too spread out. Please put them together slightly, or at least don't have the early kickoff. I mean, oh, but anyway, that's just me. Uh, there's, there's plenty of uh, intriguing games there. I'm going to have to pick out I think I'll go Raysol versus Kobe because Raysol now obviously losing to Yokohama FC they've got to be quite worried now that they they just can't score goals and they've got this massive test now against Kobe who are just flying at the moment I think this is a really interesting game uh, we spoke about Poyatos being under under threat at Gamba and there were protests throughout them well after the game again for Raysol that and Nelsinho might be in trouble obviously he's against his former club so I think there's a few storylines going on on here, so I think that game could be really interesting, especially if Race will go on and lose it to see how the fans react to that performance. Indeed, yeah. So you've gone for 16th versus first. Um, I'm tempted to go uh, 18th versus second, and yeah, go on then. I will. Uh, it, will Danny Poyato still be in charge, and will his players? Go into bat for him against the defending champions. We'll uh, we'll wait and see uh, on both of those counts. Um, either way, uh, Gumba would simply have to have a reaction, and um, yeah, we'll we'll see if they can produce one against the defending champions uh, under the lights at the Panasonic Stadium. That's the the late game, 7 p.m. on Saturday, and um, yeah, it should be an occasion. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Before we go, uh, again, we'll thank Alan again. And we'll thank our newest patron, Reese, for coming on board uh, in the last uh, week or so. Uh, Reese, great to have you along. 
for the ride. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our patrons for their ongoing support on Patreon. And, uh, well, Sam, yes, we've, we've made it through a marathon episode. Whether it's the longest episode of JTalk ever remains to be seen. But, um, well, yeah, when you, you get a resource like Alan on, um, it's, uh, it pays to just sit back and enjoy the ride. Uh, it certainly has been a phenomenal first 30 years of the J League, and it was great to get his thoughts on it. Yeah, as you said earlier, there was nobody else we could have picked as the perfect guest uh, to celebrate 30 years of the J-League. Yeah, it was great to hear everything that he had to say and allow him to then go off on referees, which I know he uh, enjoys to do. So that was great. And yeah, it's, it's, we're getting late, though. I mean, you could stop these me finishing at 20 past four. It's not really on. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right, mate. We'll uh, work on that uh, in the future episodes. Um, yeah, I mean, we could have broken it up into two parts, listeners, but it's a podcast and you can listen to it at your own leisure. Skip through the parts uh, that you might not be interested in. And uh, yeah, we all come out happy at the end of the day. So we'll leave it there then. Uh, that's it for this week's episode of the J Talk podcast. We'll be back next week to round up J1 match day 14. Speak to you then. Bye for now. The J Talk Podcast. Yes, 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 yes.